1949, Hank Williams was getting frustrated. He had a neighbor that kept complaining to the apartment manager in the apartment where he and Audrey lived about the noise that Hank and Audrey made when they got into their frequent fights. So Hank wrote and recorded a classic country song entitled, Mind Your Own Business. And everyone from Charlie Pride to Ernest Tubb to Hank Jr., you know these people, right? recorded this song. And it has some wonderful lines in it. It's written to his neighbor who shared the south wall with him. It says, Minding other people's business seemed to be high-toned, but I've got all that I can do just to mind my own. Why don't you mind your own business? And then the, the catch line is, if you mind your business, then you won't be minding mine. If you mind your own business, you'll stay busy all the time. Turns out, this is wise and sanctified advice. In our, in our text today, and I hope you have your Bible open to John 21, we'll hear Jesus tell an apostle to mind his own business. Now the context, if you have not been here before or if you've forgotten since last week, the context is after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the physical context is a, a beach on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a, it's a very familiar spot. It's the same place where Jesus called many of his disciples to himself for the first time three and a half years earlier in Mark chapter 1. It's the same exact spot, this beach, where Jesus told these same men that he would make them fishers of men in Luke chapter 5. And after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples were told to go to Galilee and to wait there to meet Jesus. And so seven of the disciples, who were commercial fishermen, had gone to Galilee together, the northern part of Palestine. And they had thought, well, we're going to wait for Jesus here in Galilee where he had told us to wait, but we're not going to sit on our hands. And so they got busy working. And they had spent a night. They were commercial fishermen. This is what they knew how to do, they came to the shore after a hard night of fishing, and they were met by Jesus who enacted another miracle with the miracle of the giant catch. And they're waiting on the beach for them. He's prepared breakfast for them. And that's when Jesus restores Peter. After Peter's threefold denial just two and a half weeks earlier, and now Jesus restores him to ministry. And you'll notice in the context just above ours, you know that he's restored because Jesus gives him clear apostolic duties, including teaching and shepherding. Now today in our text, a very brief text, you'll notice we're drawing to the end of our consecutive exposition. Next Sunday we'll complete it, God willing. But you'll notice in our text today that Jesus issues a prophecy about the rest of Peter's life and his death. And he also issues, and you're going to scratch your head and think, really? Jesus, this is really what you're going to say after your resurrection? Don't you have something positive you could focus on? He's going to issue to Peter a rebuke for his intrusion into other people's affairs. Now, let me say right now, there are some of you who wouldn't like it at all if somebody came up to you and rebuked you for sin and named sin. You'd say, mind your own business. Carl said that and so did Hank. Well... What we're talking about in our Lord's rebuke to Peter is not about when somebody comes and names your sin, but just when they're up in your business and it's not their business. 
And we're going to see how profoundly Christological this is. The reason why Jesus tells Peter to mind his own business is because he has something very important for him to do, as the Lord has something very important for you to do. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to open this word. Our Father, send now the Holy Spirit to us, that as the word is proclaimed, all other voices will recede to the background. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace, even the voice of Christ. We do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look carefully at your Bible, John 21, beginning with verses 18 and 19, where Jesus will issue, first of all, a prophecy and an exhortation to Peter. Now, I want you to notice the repeated phrase in this brief interaction. You see it twice in our context. And Jesus begins to talk to Peter about, he's just restored him, remember that. And so Jesus begins to talk to Peter about past days. Him as a young man in verse 18. And he reminds Peter that as a young man he's been self-reliant. He says, you girded yourself. Peter had been a vigorous, active, healthy young man. When I think of a vigorous man, one of my heroes, you've heard me refer to him an awful lot in this pulpit, was Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt, whether it was his charge up San Juan Hill or his life as a cowboy in the West, his being shot with a bullet in the chest and continuing his presidential speech before he'd go to the hospital, Teddy Roosevelt wasn't always a vigorous man. In fact, he'd been a, a very small, sickly, frail child. But his father, who made him memorize the shorter catechism before he was nine, his father kept pushing him every day urging him to take up more and more difficult pursuits. And in turn, he enrolled Teddy in boxing classes, in rowing classes, in jiu-jitsu, when nobody even knew what that meant, saying that the Christian life for a man was all about the strenuous life. As Teddy grew up, national debates were flaring in 1899, and pastors and politicians were debating over the issue of the growing softness and feminization of young men. Sound familiar? It was to this moment that Teddy stepped and gave a historic speech while he was the governor of New York. The speech was entitled, The Strenuous Life. And in that speech, he repeatedly states this refrain, Men, let us shrink from no difficulty, moral or physical, if you are certain that the cause is justified. For it is only through hardship, through dangerous endeavor, that we shall please the Lord. And so he, he uh, entreated men in that audience to be vigorous. Well, notice what Jesus is referring to here in our text. Look at verse 18. He's saying to Peter, Peter, you've lived the strenuous life. He'd worked a very demanding vocation. I've pointed out several times how difficult it was to be a commercial fisherman. And then for three and a half years, he walked long distances every day with Jesus up and down the extent of Palestine, from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, repeatedly. And this is what Jesus is referring to at the beginning of verse 18, that Peter Peter had been a vigorous, strong, healthy man. But then notice the change that Jesus brings in verse 18. He prophesies about an event that will occur to Peter as an old man. Jesus foresees a day when Peter will be taken in chains, 
to a destination he'd rather avoid. Look what Jesus says. He says, they will carry you where you do not wish. And what Jesus is talking about, we're actually told, we don't have to guess. Look at verse 19. We're told that this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. Jesus is talking in the second half of verse 18 about Peter's death by martyrdom. When he says, you will stretch out your hands, that was a, that was a euphemism for you will stretch, stretch out your hands to be nailed to a cross. All of Christian history testifies to this fact that Peter indeed was stretched out on a cross. The church history in Eusebius, historian, in his ecclesiastical history, published the earliest known account of the crucifixion of Peter under Nero, the emperor of Rome. But Peter insisted before he be crucified that he turned upside down that his head be pointed toward the ground and his feet towards the sky because he insisted that he was not worthy to be crucified as his Lord had been. You remember how Peter had boasted in the upper room discourse the night before the cross in John 13 that he would lay down his life for Jesus even if nobody else would. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, Peter, you'll get to do just that. Now what you are scratching your head at in verse 18 and 19, you're saying, How does Jesus know what's going to happen to Peter? Because he's the omniscient Lord. Didn't Jesus, or didn't Peter just confess the omniscience of Christ? Look at verse 17 just above. For doesn't Peter confess this when he says, Lord, you know all things. That's what we mean by the omniscience of Christ. He knows everything. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's never learned anything. He's always known everything. Nothing surprises him. He knows all facts simultaneously and completely. Jesus knows the future because he's our prophet. Oftentimes when we sing of the three offices of Christ or speak of it, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, you'll notice that two of those offices get really short shrift. We say very little about Christ our prophet and even less about Christ our king, and we prefer to focus on Christ our priest where Jesus is doing things for us, namely atoning for us. But Jesus here is exercising his office as prophet in verse 18. He is that prophet who was prophesied and foretold 1,400 years earlier in Deuteronomy 18. Even the immoral Samaritan woman recognized, you remember in John chapter 4, that Jesus is prophet. After he names her living situation and her sexual history, she said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. But as a prophet, Jesus does more than know the future. He perfectly foretells the future. Look at verse 18 and 19 carefully. We're told that what he tells Peter is a prophecy about his awful coming death. But then look at verse 19 about how that death would glorify God. Parents, let me give you a tiny parenting tip here. Part of a normal Christian home life for about the previous 450 years until just a few years ago used to be reading Fox's book of martyrs because Christians parents wanted to raise children that were brave and ready to die for Christ's sake. One of the things we are seeing in our culture, even in previous weeks, is the complete loss of manly courage and bravery 
And what we see here is Jesus telling Peter what's going to be happening to him about the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And Jesus does that to put steel into his backbone. If you read a a standard treatment, something like Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll read about Latimer and Ridley, how they were burned at the stake for their testimony. One of the first martyrs, perhaps one of the earliest public martyrs, Polycarp. And what we see here is that the saints, look carefully at verse 18 and 19. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to glorify God through this suffering death. Remember, the same thing was said of the Apostle Paul. When he was newly converted, the Lord sent a man to speak to him and said, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake in Acts chapter 9. The suffering saints do glorify God. Do you see that in verse 19? Look carefully. This is not a subject where you're thinking, Carl, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to think about that. Because it might possibly, if I look at it, it might somehow happen to me. But notice what Jesus says to Peter. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Today there, is, there are believers who will die for one reason around the globe. They name the name of Jesus. From North Korea to Nigeria, from Iran to Pakistan... They will glorify God by not murmuring or complaining. They will glorify God by dying well and dying in faith. This sounds so foreign to our sanitized ears. Let me give you some perspective on what suffering has meant and still means today for Christians. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles get a collective beating. Was this just... A difficulty, something that would never happen to us, something that was a happenstance? No. This was a difficulty specifically received because of their identification with Jesus. What was their response to this trial, to this beating? We're told in Acts 5, they rejoiced because they'd been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Then in Acts chapter 12, another one of the disciples, James, is executed for Jesus' sake. And then in Acts chapter 7, you have the persecution and execution of Stephen, specifically for his fidelity to Jesus. And then once the apostolic age ended, the martyrdom didn't slow down. One of my personal heroes, Patrick Hamilton, in 1525, was murderously executed for his testimony of faith in Christ alone. He's the first Protestant martyr in Scotland. 1680, Richard Cameron, again in Scotland, was killed, actually beheaded, for his insistence that Jesus alone is Lord and King. Recent days, 1956, Jim Elliott and his companions were murdered in the jungles of Ecuador by Aka Indians as they tried to preach Christ. Every one of these men I named, Peter and John, James and Stephen, Patrick Hamilton, Richard Cameron, Jim Elliott, all could have avoided this martyrdom. But they didn't. They took up their cross. After this prophetic word about the manner of his death, look carefully at Jesus' instruction to Peter. And this is what's going to shock you about Peter's response in just a moment. In verse 19, after telling him, Peter, this is how you're going to die. And then he says, follow me. 
This is the word that Jesus commanded Peter when he first called him three and a half years earlier in Mark 1. Now, let me add some depth to this. Because far too often we will say, I have, I have people who send me emails and at the bottom. It will say, uh, from a Christ follower, Bill. Well, this phrase, when Jesus says, follow me, it's not just an empty thing. Jesus has defined following him. Listen carefully. See if these words strike a memory cord with you. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and then follow me. The real Christian life consists of giving up all aspirations of leadership and begins mastering followership. We have way too much leadership training and not nearly enough followership training. Many have been told that following Jesus is a a life of convenience that has personal ease and comfort as a goal. In fact, millions of American evangelicals have covered themselves with a, a very decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They're somewhat involved in the Christian life, enough to be respectable, but certainly not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is like a big, soft pillow. It comforts them from the hard unpleasantness of life, but it changes its shape to meet their convenience. This chief corruption has been in the terms of the Christian life. Jesus states the terms. Listen to them again. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And so look at those words hanging off the end of verse 19. Jesus is telling Peter he's reissuing the terms of discipleship. And at minimum, he's saying to Peter, when he says, follow me, he means at least the minimum is this. Peter, follow me in my holiness. You remember Jesus was sinless. No sins in word, thought, or deed for 33 years. No sins of commission or omission. No sins of lust or lies. No murderous hate. Pure obedience to the Father's command. He had stated this in John chapter 8 when Jesus said, I always do those things that please my Father. Even the demons confessed, we know who you are, you're the Holy One of Israel. The thief on the cross confessed it when he said, this man has done nothing wrong. This is the pattern that Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, follow me. Every day of my life, I've turned away from every sin and temptation. Peter, follow me in my pursuit of holiness. But not just that. He's saying, Peter, follow me in my humility. This is the man whose earthly life began in a feed trough, raised by paupers, rides a donkey. Philippians 2 (coughs) chronicles our Lord's progressive steps downward, his progressive humbling to his death on a cross and then even lower to burial in a borrowed tomb. Peter, if you're going to follow me, you'll be seeking the lowest place every day. But there's more. Peter, don't just follow in my holiness and humility. Peter, follow me in my servanthood. It's very telling that Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, knelt down in front of the twelve, disrobed, took a basin and a towel, washed their filthy feet, and then said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
You also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example. You should do as I've done to you. In other words, Peter, follow me in servanthood. Jesus repeatedly stated that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. He into whose hands all things have been given, the one who has all power and authority in heaven and on earth, thinks this way. I must serve. We by nature, you and I by nature, this is so deeply embedded in us, in our Adamic nature. We hate servanthood. We despise it. In fact, if someone asks us to serve, we quickly retort with, uh, I don't do windows. I don't watch the nursery. That's beneath me. The Lord Jesus was so lowly, so servile, that he found nothing beneath him. Let me stop and ask you, are you following Christ in his servanthood? Who are you serving right now? Where do you serve? My fear is that many who call themselves followers of Jesus aren't following very closely when it comes to service. So when Jesus says to Peter, you follow me, follow me in my holiness, in my humility, in my servanthood, follow me in resisting the evil one. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, the evil one had, had attempted to ensnare Jesus to fall for any temptation. Jesus resisted him with scripture every time. Peter, you follow me. Peter, follow me in your patient enduring of the world's hatred and blasphemy. Peter had seen it with Jesus for three and a half years. Jesus was met with venom and persecution. Herod tried to, to kill him as an infant. He was finally executed at the hands of wicked men. Jesus had told Peter and the other disciples in the upper room discourse in John 15, if you're mine, the world will hate you also. So Peter, how do you follow Jesus in this? How do you respond to the exclusion and mockery and persecution like Jesus did? You follow it this way. As Jesus was being taunted, he prayed for his torturers, asking, Father, forgive them. That's why Jesus had said, pray for those who persecute you in order that they may be, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you're following Jesus, you will patiently bear with the hatred of this world. How do you follow Jesus? Follow him in his good works. We're told in Acts 10 that Jesus went about doing good. There was not a village in Israel that didn't benefit from our Lord's public ministry. Jesus was constantly healing the leper, ministering to the blind and the crippled. Christians used to know this. That's why we did things like found hospitals and orphanages. Why? Because Christians knew they had a, they had a calling to follow Jesus and passionately imitate him in his good works of mercy. A true follower of Jesus will be imitating his master by doing good. So this seems pretty clear, right? Look at verse 18 and 19. Jesus has just restored Peter and he tells him what sort of death he'll die and that he'll glorify Christ by this horrific death. And so you'd think, good old Peter, he's restored, he should be happy, he has a job to do, he knows he's going to die in service to Jesus. What more can he ask? You can count on Peter to stick his foot in his mouth at every opportune moment. Look at verse 20 and 21. We see that Jesus 
turns around and he focuses on somebody else. He focuses on John. Now notice how John writes about himself. This is one of the the fascinating earmarks of John's gospel. Look at verse 20. Look how he refers to himself. He doesn't use the word I. He refers to himself the following ways. That he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's his favorite title for himself. He's the disciple who'd leaned on Jesus during the Lord's during the Last Supper, two and a half weeks earlier. And he's the disciple who'd asked the question, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? So Peter turns around. Here they are on the beach. Jesus is risen. Jesus has just restored him. And Peter turns and sees his longtime fishing partner, John. And since Jesus has just prophesied what will become of him, Peter, Peter decides, and here's where he falls into the ditch. He decides, I think I'll find out about everyone else's future too. So he asked Jesus, look at verse 21. Lord, what about this man? What about John? And in doing so, Peter falls into the trap, the sin of minding other people's business. Hasn't Jesus just told Peter, look at verse 19. Look at the last word he just said to him. Peter, follow me. In other words, don't worry about others. Keep your eyes on me. Peter can't do it for a minute. He turns and wants to know about John's business. Now, think about if you have, didn't have the privilege to grow up in Gordon and Janice's house, who Janice would sing to us the Hank Williams song on a regular basis. If you didn't have the privilege to grow up in a, a Christian home like that, you may be thinking, I don't think this is such a big deal. Listen to how often Scripture addresses this issue of minding other people's business. In the Proverbs, passage that Pastor Anderson read to you a moment ago, Proverbs 26, it says, He who passes by and meddles in a situation not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. But then when we come to the New Testament, Paul has this difficulty with one particular congregation. There's a church, in fact, it's the church in Thessalonica, where they have a big problem with people minding one another's business. And so Paul addresses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when Paul gives them this imperative. Aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. That would be enough, right? Nope. When Paul writes them 2 Thessalonians, apparently there are still some people who said, I'm sure Paul's talking about someone else. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes, and now he drops the hammer. He says, there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, and are busybodies. A busybody is someone who is not focused on his own business, but concerned over that of others. And Peter states to the church in Thessalonica and 2 Thessalonians, if this minding other people's business doesn't cease, that the elders should pursue excommunication. This tells you how serious being a busybody Minding the business of other people is. God calls such a one disorderly. Now think of yourself. Surely you would never mind anyone else's business, right? Think of families. It's very easy for parents to mind the business of their grown children who are married and have families of their own. Some parents treat their grown children as if they're still children, telling them what to do. 
When parents feel like they have to make critical comments on their grown children's money and clothes and children, they're minding business that is not their own. Parents of adult children are failing to recognize that a new family has been established and God has established that husband as the head of the new family. So before you stick your nose where it doesn't belong in other people's business, before you ask questions, before you tell what you know and think other people should know it, before you pass on advice, ask yourself, is this really any of my business? Have I been invited into this matter or will my advice be seen as unsolicited and therefore unwelcome? Now, if Peter were thinking, and apparently he doesn't much at this point still, if Peter were thinking, he would have remembered, if he would have taken just a second, that Jesus had already told him what John's future was going to be. Keep one finger here and look back at Mark's gospel in chapter 10. Mark 10, Peter had even heard it and been perturbed by it. So remember, the, the issue is Peter's just been told what his future is. And so he says, hey, what about John? What's his future going to be? Jesus, you're a prophet. Tell us everybody's future. Jesus had done that before. Peter has a short memory. Look at Mark 10, verse 35 and following. In Mark 10, verse 35, we read, Then James and John, the one who Peter's asking about, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Pretty arrogant request. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, this is James and John, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we're able. So Jesus said to them, and this is the prophecy. Peter is standing right there, and I'll prove it in just a moment. You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you'll be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It's for those for whom it's prepared. When the ten, including Peter, heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. So you can say, Peter, why are you asking Jesus what's going to become of John? You've already told him that he will be baptized with the same baptism you are. In other words, he'll suffer just like you. Do you forget that? So here comes Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Look at verse 22. And what you need to notice is, I'm astounded by timing. There are those people who just don't get timing. There are times when they're going to ask a legitimate question, but not now. Maybe later. Not when everybody's standing around and you want to ask mom or dad why they spent this much money on that purchase in front of her. No, not the right time. So notice, Peter has just in this glorious moment, Jesus has just restored him. Jesus has just told him what's going to happen to him. And Peter wants to ask questions that are none of his business. And so Jesus issues a scathing rebuke in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. He will not satisfy Peter's curiosity. 
In response to Peter's question about John, Jesus essentially tells Peter, Peter, mind your own business. When Jesus asked Peter in verse 22 the probing question, what is that to you? He's saying, Peter, why do you need to know? Butt out. And Jesus is teaching Peter something powerful. It's astounding to me that Jesus still has a, a, uh, an amazing teaching ministry, even after his death and resurrection. For the 40 days following, he still is teaching his disciples. So here's what he's teaching Peter. Look at verse 22. When he says, if I will that he remains, he's teaching him that he's sovereign, that he is the one who wills. He's the one who appoints each person's life course, and that life plan is for the good of each believer and the glory of God. He's teaching Peter, look at his last words in verse 22, second time he said it. He's teaching Peter, your task is to laser focus on the work Christ has appointed for you. He's teaching Peter that each person has their own appointed trials and sufferings, by the way, what good would it do for Peter to know if John were going to live a short life or long life? Sinful curiosity. And so now for the second time, look at the space between verses 19 through 22. Do you know how much space that is? About 45 seconds. So for the second time in 45 seconds, Jesus has to tell Peter, Peter, say it again, you follow me. Jesus is telling Peter, the exact same truth that you've been told. That the author of Hebrews has told you when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Run with perseverance the race set before you. In other words, follow him. Jesus is teaching Peter how to trust him. He's saying, Peter, not going to tell you anything. No, no details here. Peter, you can leave the future of others in my capable hands. You focus on your own life. Fascinatingly, you would think, okay, surely with a rebuke like this, all the disciples standing around would have learned the lesson. They would have said, uh, don't, don't ask him again. We had, when our kids were little, and we just hammered away when they would say something's not fair. We'd say, oh, fair. Well, let me give you my 10-minute homily on fairness. We're Calvinists. We don't believe in fairness. And so, so my kids are about seven and nine, and it's after a Little League baseball game, and Brad Bankston's in the car going home with us. And, and Brad Bankston says, um, Mr. Robbins, can we stop and get some ice cream? And and uh, said, well, the last time that James was at my house, we stopped and got ice cream. Could we do some today? I said, no, we're not going to stop. And Brad Bankston says, Mr. Robbins, I don't think that's fair. And before the words could get out of his mouth, James and John both were like, don't say the word fair around our dead. You're going to get a 10-minute sermon. But Brad didn't get it much. And he had already been rebuked for telling us that he didn't like the music on our radio station. So <clears throat> he was already in our doghouse. But so my boys had both said, no, we, we don't talk about fair. You would think, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? After getting this rebuke, that the next time somebody was going to stick their nose in where it didn't belong, that the other disciples would clap their hand over his mouth and say, don't, Peter really got in trouble for doing that. This will show you how slow we are to learn. Look at Acts chapter 1. The last day of Christ on earth. Before his ascension, 
Look at Acts 1, beginning in verse 6. Jesus still, and I'm always fascinated by this, how when people talk about the ascension, they don't talk about the fact that Jesus actually issues a rebuke just before he ascends. So much for our Lord's winsomeness. Look at Acts 1. When they'd come together, they asked him, saying, Now, by the way, in case you don't know, I'm just going to go ahead and preface this. This is them not minding their own business. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And then look what he tells them to do. Y'all do what you've been told. He says in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Jesus is now moments away from ascending in Acts chapter 1 and still has to straighten out the apostles again and tell them, mind your own business. What you want to know out of sinful curiosity is you want to know the moment of my return. What you need to know is your business, which is world evangelization. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard from churches where the the church never thinks about evangelism or missions, but they're having their fourth prophecy conference this year. That's what Jesus rebukes the disciples about here just before he ascends. He says, it's not for you to know. And so one of the things that many New Testament scholars have, have nailed down is, that many of the things that Jesus says to the disciples post-resurrection and pre-ascension are rebukes about minding their own business. Peter gets it, finally. And when he much later pens his first epistle by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells believers this, that they shouldn't meddle in other people's business. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes these words. You think, this is a lesson hard won. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Peter got it. Notice how John corrects something that's false that comes out of this discussion. Look at verse 23. Even the early church misinterpreted the word of Christ, so we're shown an early public twisting of Jesus' words. Jesus, in verse 22, had not intended to declare anything definite about John or the timing of the second coming of Christ, but only to state that he had power over John's life and death. So how do you apply this word? First of all, you will notice the repeated imperative from Jesus. Verse 19 and verse 23. Follow me. As I said, follow Christ in his holiness, in his humility, in his works of service, in his resistance of temptation. My friend, don't say you're a Christ follower if you have no desire to actually follow Jesus concretely. If you see, you know, I really haven't been following at all. I've been leading. Then today, retire as a general. Put on your private uniform and fall in. Start following your commander. If you see that perhaps, well, Carl, I'm not really trying to lead Christ, but I'm not following. What I want is an equal partnership with Jesus. Then repent and begin to follow. The Lord is calling you today 
to carefully heed the terms of the Christian life. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. That's the Christian life. Notice as well by way of application, Jesus' blunt word to you and I. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter had just heard a very hard word. Peter, you'll die painfully. His first thought was comparison. Isn't it interesting? Look at the movement in the text where, where Jesus has just told Peter, you're going to die a very painful, ignominious death. And you know what Peter's first thought was? Maybe you have kids in your house. No, I, it's probably, I'm probably the only person in this room who had children like this. But his first thought upon hearing this was comparison. Oh, Jesus, I, I have to suffer? Then what about these guys? What about John, who's right next to me? If I have to suffer, will he have to suffer? If my ministry ends like this with being crucified upside down, will his end like that? If I don't get to live a long life and then die in my sleep, will he get to? That's the way we as sinners are wired. Always comparing. We crave to know how we're going to stack up in comparison to others. There's some kind of high that we get if we find we can be a little more effective than them. My friend, let me remind you. Jesus will not judge you according to your superiority or your inferiority over or under anybody. Those are not the standard. Stare at the text. What Jesus focuses Peter on is, Peter, I have a work for you to do. And it's about following me. Find encouragement and even freedom today when you hear Jesus say to all your fretting, nosy comparisons, what is that to you? You follow me. Let's pray. Our Father, by this word, we ask that you would refocus us to mind our own business, to seek your glory in our life and death. Gird us to suffer hardship for Christ in our families and neighborhoods and schools. Strengthen us by this word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.